Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, hello, how are you feeling? Um, as we begin this week on which this episode is coming out, I'd say it's a pretty tense week. But you, you um, hit Theresa May with a zinger. Well, yeah, you, I don't... I, I, I it don't. was a zinger. Let, let's have a listen to Ed's zinger. Further to the question from the father of the house, does the Prime Minister not realise that in her answer, she is the roadblock to this house reaching a majority, not the facilitator of it? It is blindingly obvious, including, I believe, to members of the Cabinet, that what the House now needs to do is have a series of indicative votes, precisely so it can express its will about what it is for, not simply what it is against. Why doesn't the Prime Minister agree to that, and she'll be doing a service to the country if she did? What was her face like when you asked the question? Look, you know, her face was sort of what her face is. I mean, I, I, you know, in a way, I don't. I, I, I suspect a lot of people will be screaming when I say this. I don't really bear her personal ill will. Um, don't you find it so frustrating how inflexible she is, though? Well, because and it's I really beyond. And I really didn't like her address the nation, proclaiming Parliament. You know, she is in a. She she was dealt a shitty hand by Cameron. Let's be absolutely honest about it. But I think the problem is she's played a shitty hand in a shitty way. I mean, that's the thing. You know what I mean? I mean, she hasn't. She she could have done a lot more to reach out, uh, and she hasn't. You know, I think it's important not to get into a sort of oh, I hate Theresa May. I mean, it's not about hating Theresa May. It's about how do the hell do we get out of this doo doo? <laughs> I love that you said shitty about five times and then finished with doo doo. <laughs> tell me, tell me about getting to ask that question. So do you have to go and ask John Burko? You have to bob. What because, is bobbing? Well, basically, if you're not on the order paper, in other words, if you haven't put in an advance, yeah. then you're basically taking your chances. He goes Labour Tory, Labour Tory, you know, opposition Tory, opposition Tory. So, so you've got to then get in. Not you've got to catch his eye. Well, I went and saw him beforehand. I said, look, if I can't get in, I can't get in. But if I can get in, this is kind of you'd be really good. And I don't know, but I don't normally ask a question. I think if you ask lots of questions all the time, I probably wouldn't have got in. But because he wants to give a fair, give someone else a go, ex- give someone else a go, exactly. <laughs> um, but because I rarely ask a question, yeah. But if you were bobbing, how would you bob? Do you, I mean, it's a literal bob. Do you bob your head? You stood up. Oh, so you just stand up. Yeah, you stand up as somebody finishes right. to try and catch his eye. I have to say, bobbing sounds much more exciting when and, 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 than, than the actual reality. It's kind of pain in the arse, bobbing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what is he like, John Burko? Because I think, you know, this week there's been a lot of interest in him. There, of course, was the sort of digging up of the parliamentary yeah. precedent, but also there was that BBC News uh, uh, footage of him walking yes. down the street in his jumper. Oh, and- well, there was also BBC News footage of him, like, much younger with, a, like, a British mug and a British flag, and it had, like, Eurosceptic on it. Oh, really? Yeah, because he was, he was as he himself will admit, he was extremely right-wing. He was in this thing called the Federation of Conservative Students. Uh, and he's been on a big sort of journey, as they say. And have you known him for a long time? Yes, I have known him for a long time. And I actually helped recruit him to um, MI5. No, I helped, recruit <laughs> him. I helped recruit him to do this review for Gordon Brown on education for kids with special needs. Um, I, I sort of got to know him a bit when I became... Obviously, he wasn't speaker at this point, um, when I was uh, first elected. And, uh, you know, he was always a really nice bloke and, and very sort of honest about how, you know, his mind had been changed on lots of issues. And and does he does he talk like that in real life? No, I think he probably doesn't. No, so it's a bit of a theatrical thing for the role of speaker. Yeah, do you, I don't know whether you've never heard the way he says, Mr. Kenneth Clark! <laughs> and he, he, he literally does it like that to, to as a sort of almost as a kind of wind-up. 
was somebody found clips of him saying Jeremy Corbyn on every different note of the scale and then set it to music. It was it was really quite something. I was talking to somebody from the Washington Post, the Europe editor of the Washington Post, and they live in Washington, and they were saying that their children, who are six and three, now do imitations of yeah, him. A friend texted me the other day to say that he's annoying his wife because he's sort of constantly doing impersonations of him. It's uh, it's the craze that's sweeping the country to do the burkow. Doing the burkow. Yeah. You fancy being Speaker of the House at any stage? Mm, I don't think it's quite my thing. He's that also... chair looks a lot more comfortable than the bench. He's benches obviously got a strong on. bladder. <laughs> no, do you know what? He like sits in for like Europe debates for nine hours. I mean, honestly, it wouldn't suit you. How do you uh, know he's holding it in? It's very dark those under those robes. I don't think. I don't know. I don't think. I mean, presumably he just. I, he pretty just doesn't drink anything all all day. Oh God, no, I'm worried about him getting dehydrated in those robes. It must be warm as well. Mm. Uh, well, that's uh, that's a feel we've covered yeah. covered the week and yeah. covered John Burko. What are we talking about on the episode this week? So this week we're talking about big tech, and you know it's a subject we've talked about in the past, but we're talking very specifically about should we be breaking up big tech companies, and and, and the case for doing that as part of her campaign to become the Democratic presidential nominee, Elizabeth Warren, one of the Democratic candidates, has announced a plan to tackle tech monopolies with two key proposals which is saying certain companies are so-called platform utilities that cannot both own a platform and operate on it themselves and appointing regulators to actively break up anti-competitive mergers. So Amazon took over this grocery chain called Whole Foods, Facebook and WhatsApp, Instagram, Google and something called DoubleClick. So it's it's really kicking off from that uh, into this question of, you know, are these monopolies, are they damaging and what do we do about it? And we've got some great experts who are going to be talking about them. One of them is Barry Lynn, um, who is almost a sort of godfather on these issues. He runs something called the Open Markets Institute, which used to be part of a foundation called the New America Foundation. He was got rid of, he, he says, because of pressure from Google, which was one of the funders of this organization. Now, that is, we should say, denied by the uh, New America Foundation, as that's the reason, but we're going to be talking to him. And we're also going to be talking to Sally Hubbard, who is a former antitrust enforcer, uh, in New York. So she served as Assistant Attorney General. We're delighted to have uh, Sally, on, who's going to be on the line to us, and Dr. Neve Dunn, who's Assistant Professor of Law at LSE. I think this is a really big issue, and I'm really glad we're talking about it. And in this week's Comedian Slot, we are joined by Finn Taylor, whose show uh, I saw at Edinburgh last year when Harassi met Sally. It was really good, so I'm looking forward to hearing his ideas. What's your reason to be cheerful this week? My reason to be cheerful is that in the ever-present long-lasting, indefatigable search for box sets. We have got into Trapped Series 2. Oh, Trapped is great. I've not seen any of Series 2 yet. Yeah, it's good, Trapped. It's set in Iceland. It's funny, I didn't really buy Series 1. We didn't quite get into it, but we're more into Series 2. So if you didn't like Series 1, how did you end up watching Series 2? We were sort of desperate. Right, right, right. What about you? My reason to share for this week is I went to another (laughs) supper club. So last week I was saying for the for the first time I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd gone to a supper club. I went yeah. to another one this week. It was um, it was modern Indian food. It was called Avi's Modern Indian, and it was fantastic. And as I said last week, you sort of sat on a table with other people, and I didn't do much interacting last week. This week I went with um, uh, one of my late in life male friends, Anthony from the NCT group that I was in, and we ended up talking to the people on the table with us and one of the people saved the Dulux dog so she came into Dulux as head of marketing or whatever and they'd scrapped the dog from the adverts it was still on the tins but they thought oh no it's old hat now and she said no the Dulux dog is beloved and thanks to her we still have the Dulux dog well there you go yeah well these supper clubs they becoming a big thing then yeah do you want to come to one with me yeah voice went high then (laughs) yeah (laughs) there we go I'll believe you now Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to speak now to Barry Lynn, who is Executive Director of the Open Markets Institute and author of Cornered, The New Monopoly Capitalism and the Economics of Destruction. Uh, Barry, firstly, thank you for getting up at an ungodly hour on the West Coast of America to to speak to us. And um, I'd like to start by asking you about your own first-hand experience of getting on the wrong side of big tech? Well, sure. Um, I wrote 
two books. Uh, in addition to Corner, they also wrote a book called End of the Line, and I wrote those both at a, a think tank in Washington called the the New America Foundation. I was at New America for about 15 years, and uh, this was a uh, a nonpartisan and just sort of free thinking type of, of place, and uh, it was really my home. And uh, I built out this organization within it, a program called Open Markets that was looking at threats posed by concentration of economic power. Like I said, I'd been doing this for 15 years uh, until the summer of 2017, June of 2017, when uh, uh, the uh, Margaret Vestager in Brussels imposed her first fine on Google. And my little team put out a statement that said, hey, you know what? This is a good idea. American regulators, you should study this this idea. You should... Uh, learn from it, and you should build upon this decision. And uh, within two days, my entire team had been told we had to leave, and we had two months to leave. And do you know what happened behind the scenes that led to that? Uh, yeah, actually, I got a call the the day that we put out the statement from the head of our organization, Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, that afternoon, and she said, Barry, Google is absolutely livid. They're going to pull all of their support. They are uh, everything, the corporate money, the private family money, everything. And then she hung up. And then uh, two days later, we were shown the door. Now, now, now Barry, you, um, I want to read you a quote, which is actually about you, and it's very complimentary by, by Tim Wu, a Columbia law professor. He said this about you. I sometimes think of him like Captain America, frozen in a block of ice after World War II and returning to do battle with the values and rhetoric of another generation. He has single-handedly widened the Overton window, in other words, changed the political debate. I mean, that's a pretty nice quote to have said about you. So, so if, you know, we're talking to Captain America, tell us how you, what, what your key insight is in changing this whole debate about antitrust and and monopolies in relation to tech. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Tim went a little far there, but um, <laughs> have you got a cape? I keep it uh, on the bottom of my suitcase. Like <laughs> very special occasions. I mean, the basic thing, you know, is, I mean, the United States was founded, or the, the 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 American people came together and created the United States to protect us against concentrations of power, concentrations of economic power, concentrations of political power. You know, the, the, the Constitution itself is one of the greatest anti-monopoly, it's probably the greatest anti-monopoly document in human history. And we fight monopoly to uh, protect our ability to operate in, in, in open markets. We fight monopoly to protect our democratic institutions. We fight monopoly to protect our communities and our families. And we did that really, really well for 200 years. And then one generation ago, these folks, I mean, and sometimes we talk to, uh, we, we refer to them as neoliberals, or sometimes we'll refer to them as Chicago schoolers, uh, or, you know, sometimes the United States will call them libertarians. They came along with a radically different view of how we should do competition policy, anti-monopoly. And they said the purpose, the only purpose of competition policy should be to promote efficiency in the name of the consumer so that the consumer has more stuff. And despite the fact that this was, if you think about it, an absolutely ridiculous contention, they actually won that debate and got that idea built in to the way American regulators enforce all of our anti-monopoly laws. 35 years after we embraced this new approach, this consumer welfare efficiency approach to competition policy, what we see are these super giant corporations, bigger than any we've ever seen before, with powers that no previous giant has ever had, powers of surveillance, powers of, of to manipulate the individual with information uh, that no previous uh, uh, corporation has ever had. Uh, we see super giants uh, everywhere, and it is a direct result of the shift from a focus on distributing power to concentrating power. And when you're talking about these giants, I guess, uh, specifically, you mean Google, you mean Facebook, you, you mean Amazon. Um, 
Can you talk to us a little bit about what they do that that has them defined by you as, as monopolies? What are the examples? And, and what's the harm that it does? And yeah. what's the harm that they're doing? Google, Facebook, and Amazon, uh, what they do, they're middleman monopolies. They're network, uh, uh, they're, they're network monopolies. They're, they're like the railroads were, um, you know, 120, 130 years ago. They're like uh, the communications, telephone, and telegraph corporations were. Because uh, they, they control, uh, they connect people. They provide, they allow someone to get to market. They allow someone to uh, communicate an idea to another person. They allow people to share news with one another. They're, uh, so they're, they're networks that stand in between the citizen as a producer, a creator, and the citizen as a, a buyer, a reader, a, a, a voter. And we've had middlemen for many, many, many uh, decades, for centuries. You know, we've had the railroads. We had AT&T. Uh, we had the electrical uh, uh, networks. And w- w- every single previous network, what we did is we applied simple rules to make them neutral, to ensure that they served us. And with Google, Facebook, and Amazon, these are the first middlemen monopoly networks that we have not imposed simple neutrality rules on, common carriage rules. And that has given them a license to use their middleman power, their monopoly power, the fact that we have to use them, their essential nature in between, as, 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 as connectors. They, we've, we've allowed them to have the license to manipulate, to exploit that power, to manipulate us. Jeff and I have had sort of friendly, all of our disagreements are friendly, have had friendly disagreements about this in the past because I think he's slightly more in the camp of, I quite like my Amazon packages that arrive. I don't mind, you know, Google's a good search engine. What If you had to sort of say to Jeff, what's the kind of harm? What What's the harm either now or in the future that, that might be being done by this? Because I know I say this from a position of privilege, but I kind of feel like that my, my data is the price I pay for a good service from these companies. The problem is not the technology. You know the, the the problem is that we have a, uh, is the business models that we've been allowed to uh, be applied to these technologies. And we could have the same use out of these technologies without having exploitive, destructive business models attached to them. Now there there is a lot of interest in regulating the tech firms. There's a lot of momentum around various ideas. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has made some proposals. Uh, can you talk us through those proposals and uh, give us some idea as to whether you think that is a good solution? So she, she's a particularly gifted intellectual. Uh, she's a very gifted politician. Um, uh, she's been studying this uh, for a while now. Uh, and she came out uh, a couple of weeks ago with a proposal that was, it's been rendered as break up the big tech companies but there's a much more sophisticated uh idea than that it's actually that's it's it's what i'm talking about it's make these corporations neutral by applying common carriage style regulations to them and then sometimes you have to reinforce that neutrality by preventing these corporations from going into competition with the people who depend on them to get to market. So the proposals that, that uh, Senator Warren is putting out, uh, these are really terrifically important proposals. They're vanguard proposals, and I expect that many of the other presidential candidates are going to embrace them. Here in the United States, what we're seeing is the rise of folks on both sides of the aisle. This is not a left-right issue. This is not a Democrat uh, versus Republican issue. This is every American realizing we got a hell of a problem here, but we can fix it. Barry Lynn, Captain America, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. And joining us now from the East Coast of America is Sally Hubbard. Uh, She is Director of Enforcement Strategy also at the Open Markets Institute, and she used to be the Assistant Attorney General in the Antitrust Bureau of New York State. So she is a former antitrust enforcer. Sally, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us a bit about your work as an antitrust enforcer. I think both Jeff and I quite like the sound of that, don't we, of being an enforcer? Yeah, I want to be an enforcer. (laughs) Well, I worked at the New York State 
uh, Antitrust Bureau of the New York State Attorney General's Office. In the United States, we have the federal antitrust enforcers like the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. And then we also have state-level enforcement at every state. You know, the difference between the U.S. and Europe is that if you want to bring a case, you have to cons- you have to convince a court that the case is strong. And I think that's one reason why it's much harder um, to make things happen in the U.S. than in the EU. And and does tackling tech monopolies does that require new legislation, uh, or is it more about enforcing existing rules? I think we could use both. To be honest, there have not been enough cases brought. Really, the last major monopolization case against a tech company was Microsoft, the US v. Microsoft case, which was over 20 years ago, um, or about 20 years ago. So we need to be enforcing existing laws. Uh, I think that all of the tech platforms have mimicked the conduct that was found to be illegal in the US v. Microsoft, and a lot of cases could have been brought. Can you just explain to us the traditional consumer welfare interpretation of antitrust law and how you think that's sort of inadequate and falling down and needs to be replaced? The consumer welfare standard perhaps made sense at the beginning. The idea behind it was that we need to be able to distinguish robust competition from actually anti-competitive behavior. So that is why this frame came about of, look, let's look and see how the conduct affects the consumer. I do think it's important to have measurability. So things like prices, increased prices or reduced output are very easy to measure. So that's the way that antitrust law went. It went to, we will prohibit conduct or we will prohibit mergers if there's going to be higher prices or there's going to be a reduced output of the good. But it's really gotten out of control. Um, It definitely doesn't capture the main abuses that tech platforms in, engage in because, you know, these are zero price markets when it comes to dollars. Consumers do pay with their data, but when consumers aren't paying with dollars, these tech platforms can largely evade antitrust enforcement under this consumer welfare standard. And then the other thing is, even if we kept the consumer welfare standard, we could take a really much broader view of what constitutes consumer welfare. I think just focusing on higher prices and reduced output is just capturing one tiny slice of what it means to be a human being, right? I mean, what about wanting to live in a world where you can get a fair wage, which monopoly power doesn't allow, or um, living in a democracy that doesn't ha- is not being distorted by a few um, tech giants that have you know, no constraint over what, what their algorithms choose to do. So it just doesn't make sense to only focus on one tiny bit of what constitutes the welfare of a human being. And you've written that fake news is a product of the relatively dominant position of both Facebook and Google. Just explain, presumably another harm, just explain briefly why you make that argument. Sure. Well, Facebook's algorithm is programmed to prioritize engagement. And this suits Facebook's business model because The more engaged people are with content, the longer they stay on the platform. The longer they stay on the platform, the more Facebook can show them advertising and collect their data to then target more advertising at them. And unfortunately, the most engaging content tends to be content that makes us fearful and angry. So Facebook's algorithm literally surfaces the fake news that makes is, tends to be very incendiary above legitimate news that maybe isn't going to make you super angry and, and clicking on it and sharing it like crazy, right? And this is really just an exercise of Facebook's profit motives and business incentives to keep users engaged on the platform by prioritizing that content that gets the most clicks. Now... If you had competition, Facebook would be constrained from just pursuing its business model without any regard to the consequences. You know, there'd be another alternative for users to say, you know what, I want to use this platform that shows me legitimate news and doesn't prioritize the fake news. Or um, advertisers could go elsewhere as well. You know, there needs to be some competitive constraint. 
that takes us on to what we can do about this. Now, Elizabeth Warren has made two proposals in particular around designating certain companies as platform utilities that can't both own a platform and operate on it themselves and being more uh, interventionist when it comes to anti-competitive mergers. Is she on the right lines? How practical is it to do this stuff? You've been at the coalface actually trying to make kind of antitrust action happen. How how practical and, and sensible are these ideas and what other ideas should we be looking at? A big part of the problem is that, as I like to say, the, these tech platforms, they are controlling the game and they're playing the game too, right? No one wants to compete against a company that is controlling the rules of the competition. And that's what's happening with all of these platforms. So the idea is you have to choose, you know, Amazon, are you going to be a marketplace or are you going to be a seller on the marketplace? You can't be both. I'm sorry, forgive my ignorance here, but would that mean Amazon couldn't I mean, they, they'd still be a platform where people could sell things, but they couldn't, what, produce their own books, their own food and all of that, which they're starting to do. Is that is that the point? Amazon has been very aggressive with its Amazon Basics line. And what it does is it watches what products perform well on its platform. It has all of the data. And then when it sees something that is performing well with high margins, it just creates it itself. And then it has all these ways of making its own product show up first in the search results for uh, the consumers. And, you know, with Amazon accounting for nearly one out of every $2 spent online, it can literally just steal the commerce from the company that had initially created the product. Can I ask, how would that be different to one of our big supermarkets like Tesco's, for example, noticing what's selling well, making something of its own brand, a similar product, and then displaying that very prominently in its stores? I know the answer to that. <laughs> Sally, isn't the answer, you're the expert, but isn't the answer to that that, you know, there are other supermarkets, they don't own the high street. I mean, if Tesco's owned the high street and was the was controlling who could be on the high street, that would be one thing. But, you know, you can also have a Sainsbury's or a Marks and Spencer's or a Morrison's on the high street. I mean, the point is Amazon is the high street. Is that right, Sally? That's exactly right. You can do things when you have competition that you're not allowed to do when you're a monopoly. In the EU, it's called abuse of dominance, right? So conduct that you could do when you're not dominant, it's not illegal. It's only when you have that dominance and you abuse it. Same thing in the U.S. for a monopolization case under the Sherman Act. One of the requirements is that you have monopoly power. The other requirement is that you use exclusionary conduct to exclude competition. So if you don't have the monopoly power, it's not a problem. So, so Sally, we have a thing on the podcast uh, called the Jeffocracy, where I am appointed some kind of supreme but benign leader. I'm very hands off and do a lot of delegation. If we were to promote you, I don't know, the head of the enforcer, the, the enforcer. The Monopolies and Mergers Enforcer yeah. with a special remit for the tech sector. What is the first thing you would do at government level on day one? I would look at some of the anti-competitive mergers that were mistakenly allowed and start to unwind them. Things like Facebook's acquisition of Instagram or Google's acquisition of DoubleClick. I would do a whole sector inquiry into the tech sector, which the FTC has started. Um, but I would make sure that we had an entire huge team of technologists that could not just understand the anti-competitive behavior of the past, but the anti-competitive behavior of the future. Sally Hubbard, you've been brilliant. I think she gets the job, doesn't she, Jeff, as the enforcer? Definitely. You don't have to do all that stuff on day one. I mean, just do one of those things, take some time to figure out where the stationary cupboard is, the kettle, maybe do it over the course of a week. Thanks so much, Sally. Really appreciate it. Uh, listening to all that uh, in Jeff's house, uh, with us is Dr. Neve Dunn, who is Assistant Professor of Law at the LSE. Uh, she's a specialist in competition and EU law, working, amongst other things, on competition policy in the digital economy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I, th I think, I don't know about Jeff, but it's sort of quite brain scrambling this. And so then you kind of latch on to something. You think, well, oh, I understand that. But clearly the EU angle to this, as Sally was saying, is obviously very relevant tell us a little bit because there's been some action this week hasn't there from the eu tell us a little bit about what the eu's been doing in this area just to get us sort of if you like tuned into what what's going on 
So the EU competition authorities are far more enthusiastic about applying um, the competition rules, specifically the rule against abuse of dominance to tech companies. Um, the US authorities seem to have a, a great fear of uh, sort of over-intervening, um, of uh, chilling innovation. The EU authorities are a little bit more gung-ho. Um, they've pursued a number of cases. Probably the most prominent are the three cases they've taken against Google, which actually began way back in 2010. Um, and I think it's probably an indication of the difficulty of actually bringing these cases that it took until 2017 that even one of the cases came to fruition. And so there's been decision uh, 2017 against what was called sort of Google's self-preferencing. So prioritizing its own comparison shopping products in the results that it displays in its general search product. That was seen to be unfair and it was seen to kind of be uh, distorting competition in the comparison shopping market. Uh, you got a two and a half billion euro fine there. Um, then last year, there was a Google Android case, which has already been mentioned, um, where amongst other things, Google was held to have violated Article 102 by essentially requiring handset manufacturers who want to use the Android product, who want to use the Android um, software, the operating system, to also to pre-install both Google uh, Google Search and Chrome if they want access to the Play Store. Since you need Jeff. access to the Play Store. <laughs> well, I mean, the flip side of that anyway, is... The third one, the third yeah, one, yeah uh, the AdSense um, well, case, which is... Uh, Basically, uh, if you are a third party website, so you're like a booking website, mm. um, and you want to have your ads powered by Google, you have to give more, more prominent placement to Google's ads rather than any other ads intermediation service provider. Jeff, what, it's what an was, outrage. What was the flip side you were going to mention? That Google has spent a very large amount of money making Android a very useful open source operating system, and it has up until very recently provided it to every handset manufacturer for free. So consumers get this product, and the remedy that Google has agreed, the remedy it's going to put into place is it's just going to charge for access to Android. So Android's going to now become something that handset manufacturers have to pay for, and they will pass on that price increase to consumers. And they'll have to pre-install the Google... They, no more. So right. that, that, that's going to be prohibited. Um, but to compensate for that, because Google Google had that pre-installation requirement so that it make more people use Search um, yeah. and to use Chrome... In I mean, Je kind of Jeff's in to... the sort of laissez-faire um, sort of end of this <laughs> market, whereas I'm in the sort of more intelligent. But even you... Who, no, no, I think it sounds I mean, awful. that does sound no, quite as bad. As I said before to Barry, you know, I know yeah. I say this sort of from a, a position of privilege and laziness. but I Privilege just, but woke. Yeah, I just sort of like using things that work well. And if the price for doing so is my data... Uh, but it sort of goes beyond you know, data, doesn't it? Yes, it does, yeah. Now, the EU is also currently investigating Amazon for anti-competitive practices and selling its own goods. We heard about that mm -hmm. from, from Sally. In February, Germany's competition authority ruled Facebook was using its dominant market power to coerce to give up their data. So there is sort of action going on in the EU context. Now, we're generally a Brexit-free zone, but tell us about what the relevance of... Will we come under the EU... <laughs> For these purposes, do we? Uh, for these purposes, for, for sort of competition enforcement purposes today, the UK, of course, does. Um, whether it will in a week's yeah. time will very much depend upon what gets agreed sure. eventually. Um, How if, important is it, though, for us to remain under that umbrella? Because I suppose, look, what, what, I suppose one thing that is striking about this, which I hadn't really understood until we started talking to you and our other guests, is you can sort of enforce this in your own jurisdiction can't you mm -hmm. so i i thought it was like well facebook they're headquartered in america so you're sort of slightly stuffed unless the americans act but actually you can act in your own but so but it's quite is it quite important without going too much into brexit but this is obviously relevant for us to remain under the eu umbrella because they've got bigger the only difference I think it makes is kind of the political might that might be behind yeah. support, supporting the decision. Yeah. So it's going to be easier for the European Commission to put in place, say, a structural remedy that might require a degree of structural separation between a tech company. Um, then the UK has an amazing competition. It's very well respected globally, but it's going to be difficult for the CMA, the Competition and Markets Authority, to force the, the breakup of Facebook or Google or whatever. So let's say we were worried about some of these takeovers that have taken place. That's got to be done in the... I mean, you can't stop... You can't disaggregate facebook from instagram uh, uh, whatsapp and instagram 
by locally. I mean, you've got to do that. What's a bit difficult about the takeovers yeah. is that these have all, to the extent that they come within the jurisdiction of the sort of merger control rules at an EU level, which is not always a given because it's based on, on on turnover. And actually, a lot of the uh, the companies that have been acquired have relatively small turnover, and so you don't even need to scrutinise them. Um, but once they've been approved by the EU, it's very, very difficult to kind of undo the merger if you decide five years down the line that you shouldn't have passed it. Um, these so the EU does have the power to block these mergers? Absolutely. And it, it, it scrutinised, you know, Microsoft's acquisition of LinkedIn. It scrutinised Facebook, Facebook acquis- acquisition of WhatsApp. So it could have blocked it? Absolutely. And actually, Facebook, WhatsApp's quite interesting because they subsequently took enforcement action on the basis that... Uh, Facebook had given commitments that they wouldn't share their data. And then, of course, they went and shared data and they imposed a big fine for that. But they didn't try to sort of unscramble the egg. But but you can, but without making the metaphor too torturous, I mean, isn't the egg, I mean, you can't unscramble the egg in one place and leave it scrambled in another, can you? Or you can. I mean, if the EU, if the European Union had blocked the Facebook WhatsApp merger, would that just not have gone ahead globally then? almost certainly wouldn't have gone ahead globally. Oh, I see. So there's a lot of EU power then. Yeah, absolutely. If we stay in the single market, we'll still be under the EU jurisdiction, yes? Yeah. But if we leave more the single... More than likely, yeah. Yeah, more than likely. If we leave the single market, we'll then be under... We'll be reliant on the CMA. Yes, absolutely. And, and the CMA is a very high-quality competition. And, and just, sorry, again, forgive my ignorance, but if they ca- if a Facebook WhatsApp thing came along again, could the CMA then block it on its own? Yes, Absolutely. Um, and in theory, it couldn't be just just couldn't be consummated within the UK. But of course, the UK is such a big market that it would likely fall apart um, globally. Uh, the UK would only be able to look at the anti-competitive effects right. within UK markets. Um, probably more interesting from a UK perspective is this slightly random power called the market investigation power, which um, allows would allow uh, the UK competition authority to sort of. Um, I suppose if an anti-competitive merger has has, got, has taken place in the past, it, it's a power that allows um, uh, the Competition and Markets Authority kind of survey markets, ask, is there any feature of the market that's having a significant adverse effect that's on exciting. consumers? And if they find that, they, they've got this huge um, sort of panoply of remedies available to them, including structural separation. So so in the Jeffocracy then, um, what would you what would you like to be? Uh, a regulator, I'm, I think. I'm I want to, up yeah. as, okay, you're the, you're, you're the regulator, the tech, the tech regulator. Uh, what, what do you want to do? I just think that to the extent that we're, we're finding problems with what they're doing, we shouldn't be afraid of regulating these uh, businesses. The mere fact that they're innovative industries doesn't shouldn't give them carte blanche from government scrutiny. I don't think it has to be all or nothing. At the moment, it either seems to be you, you know, completely hands off, leave them to their own devices, or let's break them up into tiny little bits, which we don't quite know what we will do with then. There has to be some middle ground. Let's actually start to be a bit more robust in applying, you know, applying media regulation, applying data protection rules to these entities. Neve, you're brilliant. Uh, you've got the job in the Jeffocracy, yes? Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Tech busters. <laughs> Who are you going to call? <laughs> do you tech f- busters. Do you want to form a tech busting gang? No, then? no, 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 no. <laughs> so uh, that could be our hit Hollywood spin off of the podcast. Tech busters. Yeah. It's kind of good, like, yeah. kind of good, isn't it? Do you know what is surprising about you? Yeah. That you were never on Blockbusters. I mean, you just <laughs> seemed like the type who would have been. Yeah, I applied. I couldn't get on. Well, th- I think they're doing a remake with Dara O'Brien. You could apply. Maybe Probably. you. You'd be quite good. We could form a team, a blockbusting team. Well, you and I. Yes. You think I'd drag you down? You think you'd be better off without me, don't you? Give me a pee, pee please, Bob. <laughs> yeah, and all that. Yeah. yeah. What do you think then? Well, the more I think about it, the more I think with being this borderline millennial, I think I have had the attitude of thinking about monopolies and mergers, specifically, you know, about how they affect you as a consumer. But having you know, talk to our guest today. Uh, th- there is some scary biscuits stuff going on, isn't there? I think there is, you know, f- enhancing fake news, damaging your local high street and uh, the bookshops potentially, damaging other shops potentially. I mean, there's quite a lot of... And, and I think the fundamental principle is when power gets too large, it can act with it can act with sort of impunity. You know, it thinks its size gives its impunity. And it's sort of often true that it does. Um, and so I think it's sort of, 
I think there's a reason why the original US antitrust legislation was about market dominance, not about a sort of narrow measure of consumer welfare. Because I think, you know, it's a bit like if, if anything becomes too large and too unaccountable, you know, it, it, it just, it's almost has a tendency towards unaccountability, lack of accountability, because it's got so much money, money converts to power and all of that. And so I think that's, I think I, I'm actually sort of more optimistic, actually, having had this conversation, that there are ways of acting. The debate is sort of cracking open Elizabeth Warren stuff. The fact that Marguerite Vestager, the European commissioner, is doing good stuff, you know, here, here for now. Um, you know, I'm quite excited about the old what's-a-jigs, doodah investigation thing of me. <laughs> Think of, think of me, what's it? You've retained think, a lot of information yeah, there. No, but you know the bit I think I'm talking about. The CMA. Yeah, but we could get this like market investigation going, you know, if um, oh, the power if that, Neve is yeah, right, yeah. you know, don't you think? Yes. Should we launch a market investigation? Let, let's do it after we've applied to go on Blockbusters. Okay. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's the return of stuff. Yes. Stuff is back. We've missed you, stuff. We have the stuff we get from you. We've been quite remiss. We've been so remiss. I mean, there, there is, a, there is a, a reason for it. What's that? Basically, the email inbox got so stuck stuffed with stuff from people offering to come for the reasons to <laughs> be Nando's. focus group at Nando's that we were a bit overwhelmed by yeah. it already it was difficult to to yeah. find the other email uh, the amongst the, all that wood yes. for the chicken yes. or something but thank you to everybody who offered to come as we mentioned yeah. uh, we we had a very good time with the reasons to be cheerful listeners that we met but you know back back to business and we had a good sh- we had a good shout out on social media didn't we yes lots of good ideas and reasons to be cheerful account which people tweeted about we were looking for ideas for yeah. episodes and, and we guests. got a big big response uh some episodes we've already covered some that we haven't yeah um cosplay was one of them mm. are you intrigued in doing that like, to do with lettuce it's it's not it's to do with um dressing up as fictional characters often anime characters and doing some kind of reenactment i think see i don't know much about cosplay right. it does seem a little bit o- off topic for us maybe, might make people cheerful maybe people could do reasons to be cheerful cosplay where they dress up as us i was gonna say we maybe try it in the house of commons <laughs> Really like 1604. Yeah. Anyway, we we had a lot of uh, great suggestions. Yeah. Thank you to you if you did send in an idea for a future episode, yeah. and and we're, we're always interested to know what you think on that. And while we're about it, talking about what you think, um, we don't say this enough. Lots of other podcasts do. Please do rate us on your podcast app with five stars, um, because it'll help other people to hear about the podcast we're constantly surprised by the number of people who say oh i've just started listening to your podcast i I hadn't heard about it and i accidentally found out about it so please do go to those podcast apparoos and give us bundles of you know positivity and it is just spreading the word about the podcast it's nothing to do with our self-esteem well it's a lot to do with that actually Uh, we received this email from uh, uh, and the email address is reasons at cheerful podcast.com you've had us on 
Twitter at Chival Podcast and on Instagram at Chival Podcast and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash reason to be Chival Podcast. Uh, this one comes from Chloe Vincent who says, Hi Ed and Jeff. I, uh, I enjoyed the podcast. I particularly enjoyed the, Hi, bre- Chloe. the breadth of topics you've tackled so far. I'd love for you to do a podcast on music in education. Yes, yes, yes. And in particular, how music affects overall academic success. Yes, this yes, is yes. So important at the moment as music is currently being squeezed out of the curriculum at many schools, which is so sad. Yes. I'm a freelance musician. I'm so yes. appreciative of musical education uh, yes. that I received. It worries me future generations may not have the same opportunity. Yes. Schools are increasingly obsessed with core academic subjects. Yes. There's been a wealth of research on the subject. And uh, she said she's included a couple of links as well. Well, I don't think we can say too much at the mm-hmm. moment. We're just waiting uh, for, for, to finalise a date. But basically... Think, think we are, zebra crossing... Yeah. Okay. Well, you've you've given it away then, haven't you? We are. I don't think you have given it away. We we are going to. There are lots of zebra crossings. We there are, but I mean, we're talking the most famous zebra crossing in the world. We're looking at doing a special episode um, on a zebra crossing in the in the the, the, the most holy of holies of British music. I, I would say uh, Abbey Road Studios and doing a special episode around music, which would hopefully encompass stuff around education as well. Yeah. Now, just talking of self-esteem, here's one from Leah Fogove, which is good for, I hope I've pronounced her surname right, uh, which is good for the self-esteem. Hi, Ed and Jeff, I hope you're both well. Firstly, I did it. After perhaps six months of badgering from my husband, I decided to get on this whole cheerful podcast malarkey, and I have been absolutely blown away. There we go. Badgering works. If you've been badgering somebody and they haven't yet subscribed, keep badgering. Exactly. I do hate it when he's right. It's taken me five months, but I was determined to start from the beginning, and it was so worth it. This morning, I finished your most recent episodes, and I now join him on his weekly wait for more reasons to be cheerful. All of your podcasts were immensely interesting, some incredible, and a few even moved me to tears. I probably should have made notes as I went along, but in both the trans episode and the Gangs in Scotland episode, it made me so emotional I had to pull over. I'm a theatre director, and affecting change is always close to my heart. I love working with new writing plays and musicals that really shine a light on areas of our society desperate for change. So apart from emailing you in a self-congratulatory manner... By the way, Leah, that's always welcome. I'd also like to extend an invitation. I'm currently working on a play uh, called Half Me, Half You, which premiered last week in New York and is returning to the Tristan Bates Theatre in London at the end of this month in partnership with Stop Hate UK. Uh, and the premise is, what if you are black, gay and a woman in America right now? Anyway, it sounds really interesting. Uh, we've been invited on Monday 1st of April, I think. Brexit notwithstanding or allowing. Um, if we can, we'd love to come. And if you've got anything going on, you know, anything cheerful that you want to share with us. Or free tickets. (laughs) (laughs) But if you've got anything like that, do let let us know about it. And, you know, we can endeavour to share some of those with our listeners. The Muppet Show, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anything Muppet related, uh, I'm I'm heavily into. We could do some Muppet cosplay. Are you up for it? You could be Beaker. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here with some ideas, comedian Finn Taylor. Hello. Hello. Uh, Hello. Thanks for coming on. I was just saying before we switched the mics on, your your show, um, When Harassi Met Sally, which was the show you did at the Edinburgh Fringe last year and you've been touring ever since. I saw it and I thought it was such a clever brilliant show about grey areas yeah um how's how's the response to it being given that it's about grey areas have there been any misunderstandings um not really um one notable one uh someone was very annoyed and wrote an article in the independent but aside from that i think you can't really you can't make exceptions for people who just are going in with an agenda but most people have yeah it's been really got some really nice messages off the back of it most people have got it um so yeah no i've enjoyed doing it and and you're doing it once more in london once more at the south bank underbelly on the 3rd of may and then what what next for you then uh well i'm getting married so i'm doing that really uh congratulations thank you uh i'm not doing edinburgh this year um it was either that or the wedding yeah and uh, wedding comes first. Have you got a good title for your wedding? <laughs> no, not 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 got a great poster though. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I'm doing. So, Finn, you brought along some ideas for yes. us. Uh, what's what's the first one? First one is I would bring back national service, but what you do on that national service is you help fight climate change. 
So it'd be like a compulsory gap year. How brilliant. After school. Wow. Because uh, my, my theory is I like that you, you. Have, you have these two, you have these two, cult, you have this sort of culture war, right? Old people are like young people are all narcissistic. Yeah. They're, they're all snobs and they're all whatever. Then you have old people who young people think are sort of willfully blocking an environmental catastrophe. So you, you two birds, one stone. You have a year off. You, you compulsory, I don't know what you could do in that year. You know, working in factories, developing ways of... It's a really good idea. Pla- get it in there. Get it straight to Jez. Well, I'm, I, I might <laughs> do that. So, um, so what Cleaning about, up that big well, continent you, I mean, of plastic. I don't know, you've about? heard of this thing called the Green New Deal, which is about this idea of sort of, you know, putting people to work wartime-style mobilisation to tackle climate change. I hadn't really thought about the sort of national service gap year part of it. That's really good. But the old, good. old people basically want young people to go through a war, it sounds like. Yeah, so they're, <laughs> they're like, war. let's have no deal. They need a war. They need food shortages. It's like, well, all right. Well, let's treat climate change as if it's a war then. So you're, you're into this idea. Definitely. You're taking it straight to the top. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, what else you got, Finn? Takeaway breakfast. That's oh. not a thing. and I don't know why it's not. Well, there is a well, lot of things, aren't there? Eggs and beans. Do people not have takeaway breakfast? Takeaway fry-ups. You ever tried to order a fry-up? Put one yeah, famously once, yes. But imagine that you see that would have been a lot less politically charged if you'd been able to order that to your home, wouldn't it? It's perhaps, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the problem is that delivery have not worked out a way to transport egg and beans. You wake up and you're you know, catastrophically hungover. And you can't, there's nothing in the house. And you say, right, I have to get, I have to get a takeaway. But all you can get is like pizza and chicken. And you go, that's a bit, I want a fryer. Uh, fir- I think the first person to invent that is a millionaire. You need to have it in something. Like you? almost like a sort of TV dinner type tray with the different compartments. Like airplane food. But, yes. But I mean, you can, you know, hotels incubate eggs for the breakfast buffet. That. Also, there is room service as well. Yeah, that in a in a it's bag. Basically, room bike. service, takeaway room service. Room service, but for your house is what I want. Yeah, I think you've got to create a sort of receptacle for it, don't you? Yes, yeah, I think that's Well, that's, that's the technology. You painted that and you, you're sorted. Uh, Finn, what else do you have? No chain stores are allowed in cities or towns that have a population under 110,000. Why 110,000? Well, I did some research. My my basic premise is, so we're, we're recording this in Stoke Newington. Yeah. Which is a very nice she-she, often held up as a sort of paragon of, you know, cosmopolitan oak milk lattes. I think in the Alan Partridge book, he says uh, it's an area you could um, happily punch somebody in the face in the knowledge that they deserved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a sort of you know it's that it's that sort of tired stereotype of of metropolitan elites or whatever. But I used to live around the corner. I was sort of think, why is it so nice? And I think it's because all the businesses are sort of local independent. And there's a butcher's on, on Church Street that's, that's named after its own postcode. That's how much the sort of locality of it is sort of fetishized over. But when you go to other sort of small towns, every high street's identical. You know, Argos, Weatherspoons, Big Sainsbury's, like five miles outside. Exactly. And in these kind of more hippie-ish, um, more spirited small towns like Totnes, where they've like stopped Costa from opening. Hebden Bridge. Yeah. If you like. Um, now, all the I looked at the city size and, you know, London, Birmingham, Sheffield, Manchester, they're all very Remain. When I got to, like, you know, Stockport, Lincoln, Basingstoke, Crewe, reeks of leave. I think that kind of cultural alienation of not feeling like you have any kind of identity as a place is one of the underpinning um, cultural alienation towards Brexit, I think. That is interesting because pe- people often talk about the decline of the town centres. But Remainers, all those Remainers places, they have what I imagine... I mean, Stoke Newton's basically a theme park for self-employed people to experience the 1950s. <laughs> you know, like, really? <laughs> you know, there's a crafts, little... Craft, crafts like, people. farmer's markets is now a yeah. middle-class thing. That used to be how people shopped. Yeah. So there's some sense of that's maybe what people feel like they've lost. And so you put a cap on multinational, you know, um, chains like Sainsbury's, Tesco's, Costa's, whatever... And think, then bottom up. I think up. he's top tier. This this guy. This is. I think, I think this top is a, tier policy head. Uh, this is not the same problem, but the chicken shop followed by the pizza shop followed by the chicken shop followed by the chicken shop mm. is also not great either. I mean, unless you want lots of chicken shops. Because a lot of the chain stores are now leaving those places because they can't yeah, compete yeah. with online retailers, and there's sort of nothing to go in the in the place. So you've got to re envisage what the high street is. But I think 
But I'm not sure it's always... I don't think it's so consumer-driven as people make out. I think if people felt like they yeah. had more stake... Like yeah. if there's a community sense that, oh, I know the person that runs this shop yeah. or I know their aunt or whatever, you know, then maybe high streets would start having a bit more vibrancy rather than you go five miles out of town to go to the big Sainsbury's to do your shop. Yeah. Like, bump into anyone. Some of this came up in our public space episode, I feel, a little it bit. It did. Well, didn't it? And some of it in our towns episode. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Finn, this is great. Well, back to a trivial one now. <laughs> Every time you uh, do a hashtag on social media, you have to have it tattooed on your body. Oh, mm-hmm. what's what's your what's the rationale? <laughs> well, firstly, it would you don't like would, hashtags. Well, it, it it would it would solve two problems. Firstly, relentless bellends who sort of go you know put a picture of them up holding some kale and hashtag goals, hashtag fitness, hashtag new. If they all, if you all had to put that tattoo yourself, you feel like maybe you wouldn't be so annoying. But also, it might help solve the problem of kind of online abuse. In that, um, it feels very you know transient tweeting something, but if you actually had to have it inked on you, maybe hashtag just saying. There you go. That will yeah. be on you now. Yeah, I'm all in favour of some sort of Twitter censorship. Mm. Definitely. I'm not just. I just feel like people no. would have more responsibility yeah, over yeah. their online. Yeah, I'm, I'm like definitely into that. Yeah. What else have you got? Uh, last one, um, the same way we have quiet carriages on trains. Mm. <laughs> Not even got there. Yeah? Same way we have quiet mm. carriages on trains, I think we should have quiet carriages in pubs. Mm. In that there's nothing worse for me than when you're really excited about going to a specific pub, normally the Coronet in Holloway Road. And uh, there's, you forgot that Arsenal are in the Europa League or whatever, and it's a Thursday, and the place is mobbed. And it drives you away from the pub. And if there was a designated quiet area of a pub, it would ensure that, you know, it was a, it was, you know, it was a spectrum of, of people that were different um, reasons for going to a Do pub. Do you go to pubs a lot? Yeah. Is that a bit like how pubs used to be with the ladies' room and the tap room and the smoking room and the games room and, Probably that's and right. so on? Mm, probably. I want to go back to those times. Back to basics. Was that the EU that ruined that? It was definitely <laughs> the EEC. <laughs> yeah. the fisheries policy again. Definitely. Again? Um, <laughs> they banned quiet rooms in pubs. Yeah. Uh, European Directive number mm. 3624. Yeah. One. They made, made everyone have a ladies' toilet, for Christ's sake. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I just I just think you, pubs can get taken over by by one group, by a specific, like a stag do or football fans. And it would be nice for there to always be a space for if you just want to go and read your book or whatever. Who who would enforce the shushing? You. I would happily do that. You'd be very a, good at that. A, yeah, there'd be a, a separate publican. <laughs> <laughs> With some library experience. I think yeah. that's a good <laughs> job for you, actually. Being a sh- I think so, too, yeah. You're quite good at that, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Unless then somebody objected to me shushing them, then I probably couldn't defuse the situation. You're in the government. It's like jury service now, isn't it? Is it down to me? <laughs> no, we've well, got through all MPs. Yeah, we, 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 you know, we've selected you, I think. Yeah. Top tier. And good luck with the wedding. Thank you very much. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Oh, here's something I wanted to do with you. Uh, we're, in, we're in the outro, but I thought before we go, I could try oh, this on you. We're in the outro. Do you know about the Florida man meme? No. So it's been going apparently since 2013, but it seems to have gone a bit viral this week. And what you do is you, you type in Florida man yeah. in quotation marks. So maybe you want to get your, your yeah. iPad or your phone out. Yeah. And then... Um, once you're done with that in and where do you where do you type it into? Well, you could. T- I mean, on the subject of this episode, there are many different search engines. You know, right, it's not yes, just one. Yes, but yes. I'm I'm using uh, yes, one that's so famous. Florida man in, uh, in, in, quotation. in quotation marks, and then not in quotation marks. Uh, the the month and date of your birthday. So for me, for example, I'm typing April twentieth, and then you see what the comes. month and date. Yeah. So for you, it would be December twenty fourth. Yeah. yeah. And then you see what comes up because there's always a news story about well, a man you in. Type it as a search. Yeah. There's always going to be some news story about a man in Florida having done something weird. Um, <laughs> so what is yours? Time-travelling Florida man crashes car into <laughs> building. Florida today. A man who told police he wanted to time travel crossed his Dodge Challenger into a strip mall. I don't think that means, like, where people strip. A uh, shopping mall on North Davis Highway in Pensacola earlier this week. This is December 24, 2015. You ready for mine? Yeah. Florida man caught on camera licking doorbell. <laughs> 
Uh, Lakeworth, Florida, a bearded man was caught on camera licking a doorbell. Uh, if you don't find that surprising, it's probably due to the fact that this has happened before. A different man was caught on camera in California licking a doorbell good. for three entire hours, according to the homeowner. So there's a, there's a little thing to distract yourself yeah. with. Enjoy a meme yeah. every now and again. Uh, we should thank our guests. Yep, I'd like to thank Barry Lynn, Sally Hubbard and Neve Dunn. And the fantastic Finn Taylor was our comedian this week. Emma Corsham produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the I Don't Said compose the music. Um, and Emily Power. Power. In the style of John Burko. Emily Power! <laughs> uh, he, he's been a time traveller. He's been licking the doorbell. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.